Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, Dr. Andrew Fox, feels God's presence. In fact, when he marries a bride and groom, he feels God's presence there as well. He really tries to live in God's ways, just like my dad does. He's an officiator of weddings. He's an author, speaker, and friend. Dr. Andrew Fox, welcome. I would like you to talk about what you can talk about as far as what you're going through and having been on Tucker Carlson. So yeah, I, I moved to the country 23 years ago from England, and it was a very, very different country back then in terms of political climate. Obviously, the economy yo-yos up and down year in and year out, but the ideologies that were around then and the freedoms that we could swim in and express our thoughts in were very different than now. I cannot mention too much about it because of the nature of it, but I appeared on some national news, Tucker Carlson and some other national outlets, because I'm suing the city of Austin. It is regarding freedom of speech and religion that no government agency should be telling Americans what to believe and threatening them with being fired if they don't. That's the nature of why I'm in the middle of what I'm in the middle of. But because it is not concluded, there's not much I can say about it publicly right now without one of my attorneys being present. so But it is different. It is different now than it used to be 23 years ago. What brought you to America 23 years ago? You could look up under any federal record. I wouldn't know how to do it myself. And you will find that in August 1999, I came into the country on a religious worker's visa. It's called an R1 visa. I was a pastor of a church in Washington. And under the visa, that's the only way I could work and earn an income until I qualified for permanent residence. But of course, in the application of permanent residence, there was 9-11, you know, the biggest tragedy in the United States, you know, since I've lived here. So everyone in process under immigration, everything ground to a halt. I was visited by the FBI, along with so many others who, a matter of course, just to check that I was complying with my visa. And of course I was. And then later became, you know, when things settled down, a permanent residence or a green card. So and then shortly after that became an American citizen. So I've been through the system, you know, albeit from England, been through the legal system and with its limitations and its boundaries. And now fully a citizen for many years, along with the rest of my family. Is there anything that you can talk about as far as your experience with the FBI? What did you learn from that experience? 
Oh, no, no. I think that was a matter of course for everyone that was going through the process of immigration at the time, and rightly so, just after 9-11. So I'm sitting in my office and a very kind older gentleman turned up and, you know, made an appointment, turned up and showed me his ID. Lovely man, asked me a bunch of questions, but then... Of course, they're they're very skilled at doing that. You know, hit me from the side with a curveball question or two, of which, of course, I answered straight away. But anyone pretending wouldn't be able to answer those questions. And so, you know, I, for me, it felt like I was outside the principal's office in high school, you know, or in front of the principal, you know, when you get that awkward feeling. Completely innocent, politely interrogated. I was grateful for that in hindsight because, and again, the media were not reporting on that, but a number of people that I knew that were in process also got a visit as well. I guess, you know, Homeland Security or the launch of Homeland Security and everything else was, you know, a new endeavor and they were investigating. So, you know, do you remember what they asked? Just about my family, wife, children, my job, what was my job like and, you know, as a pastor and the duties and, you know, what country I came from, where I grew up, what was that like? You know, so you're drawn into the cradle kind of thing and then, woof, you know, some other questions to uh, try and catch you out, which is uh, their job. Thoroughly welcome that and, and embrace that because... At the time, remember, the country was in significant crisis and, and paranoia. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like, like when you did get citizenship and kind of your hopes and dreams for living here? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you move to a country, you become acquainted with its laws, its beliefs, the way with the way it operates, its its currency, its marketplace, all of those things, but especially its history. And one of the global phenomena that is out there about the United States is the Bill of Rights. Not too many countries have a similar thing, you know, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, so on and so forth. And so as Christian clergy, that was an attraction for me, where people can present different views, different thoughts, civil dialogue, agreeing, disagreeing. But now, of course, to disagree is to be evil. And so regarding the Christian faith, I mean, one must never, ever present your beliefs. And if someone does not believe, cast them in an evil frame. That is not very Christian at all. And so, but the same is not true for different philosophies. And you see that pretty rampant through the educational system and through social movements. When you do not agree with what someone is doing or saying or promoting, you know, you are deemed as fascist, whereas civil dialogue is necessary to understand, hey, tell me why you believe what you believe. Tell me why you, you function like you do. Help me out. Educate me on what it's like to live in your world. That's civil dialogue. And I think that's diminished. Let me uh, ask you that. Why do you believe what you believe? Well, for me, it is not educational per se. I think any religious experience begins or arrives at an existential experience that is part empirical knowledge. It's things that can be proven, but also of faith, things that cannot be proven except by faith. So the obvious one is, does God exist? You know, you can argue that in so many different ways, but ultimately it is a matter of faith because I have never seen God. I've never physically heard God, but I have felt his presence. Have um, you experienced his sense of humor? Oh my goodness. <laughs> 
you know, they say that, you know, how to make God laugh is to present your five-year plan. You know, I think the Bible is filled with the humor of God. Here's an example. Okay. You've got Abraham, who's the father of Judaism, Christianity, and the Islamic faith as well. Uh, they all arrive at Abraham's table. Okay. Going back in history. Well, Abraham sends out one of his servants to find his son, Isaac, a wife. Now, today we would use eHarmony or we would use Tinder or I don't know, Hinge or whatever it is. I'll be married. That's pretty hip. That's pretty hip. I've been married 29 years, so I've not had the course to use those apps. But he sends his servant out. They can't find any anyone suitable for Isaac, his son. And then they give up. Typical of men. They give up. They're exhausted. They're sitting by a well, so the story goes. And then out of nowhere comes this beautiful beautiful lady called Rebecca. And uh, scripture says she is lovely in form. In other words, she was really sexy. <laughs> and she came out and she was very strong, capable as a shepherdess. And she, she came out and, you know, the servant and Isaac intervened and Isaac suddenly, you know, falls in love with her and he admires her. He admires her for her strength, her beauty, her capabilities, all of these things. So it, there's humor in that because a man gives up, I'm fed up of looking, and as soon as he gives up, he finds what he's looking for. Well, you go back to the creation story as well. You've got Adam and Eve, and the text tells us that it's not good for man to be alone. Well, we know that. So he falls asleep, according to the story, in a deep sleep, and God takes a piece of his side out and creates woman. He wakes up and he said, you know, your bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman. If you left a man to design a woman you would get the most obnoxious, awkward creation ever. So again, leave it to God and I'll give you what you want. So if you've got single guys out there watching this, it's like, guys, you know, there's a belief system right there. I could say the same for me as well with, with my wife, you know. I went down to the city of Salisbury in England where Stonehenge is on a, a boys' weekend. And while I was down there, I met my wife, but I wasn't looking. You know, so there's there's a little example of faith and belief and a sense of humor as well. Did you feel God's presence when you met her? <laughs> I felt something, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyone who starts to spiritualize it all and say, you know, I fell in love with a personality, absolute garbage. When you lay hold, when you see your wife for the first time, that is going to be your wife. Eventually, when you look back, you think, you know what, that wasn't uh, an existential experience. That was man alive. What a woman. With all the thoughts that are not appropriate to probably say in this podcast. I would but, love to know what goes through your mind when you're marrying people, because you do that too. Oh, yes, yes. No, I officiate about 45 weddings a year. Now, here's the question there. When does a bride become a wife? And when does a groom become a husband? And who makes that happen? It's not me, the officiant, clergy, and it's not the state of Texas. The state of Texas legally recognized, but that is a God moment for me, whether you believe in God or not. We've all been there, okay? You're standing at the front as a groom with all your groomsmen, there's the bridesmaids, everyone's standing, music changes, and then the bride comes in. And at the moment the groom sees his bride, even though he's been living with her, you know, as husband and wife and everything, it's as though he's seen her for the first time. And he gets choked up. And, and maybe a few tears come down his cheeks. Well, what's that about? She sees him, and as a father walks her down the aisle, the closer she gets, she gets choked up 
few tears. What's that about? I think that in that ceremony, there is a moment where your heart begins to transform from being bride to wife and from groom to husband. And when the vows and the ceremony unfolds, by the time you get to the end, you know, having said for better or worse, richer or poor, in sickness and in health until death is due part, with this ring, I be wed and all of those things. And you announce for the first time you may now kiss your wife. The groom is now a husband and the bride is now a wife. And he leans in and he kisses her and the audience go wild. It's like watching the Titanic, the movie. You know the story. You know what's going to happen. That ship's going to sink. And yet when it starts to sink, everyone's on the edge of their seat. Oh, be rescued. Be... No, it's going to sink. It's like a wedding. You know what's going to happen. You know why you're there. And yet when they kiss at the end, we are caught up in this celebration as though that's the very first wedding we've been at. You look at the mothers on the front row, the grandmothers, the brothers and sisters, and they're all moved. And then photographers, get this, photographers will tell you, if you look at the photographs of a bride and a groom when they come in to the ceremony, the procession, bride with a father, a groom usually on his own, their faces are beautiful. But you look at those faces recessing out of the ceremony, they're now husband and wife. Their faces is a thousand subtle differences. They're now husband and wife. Now, in that, whether the couple believe in God or not, I think that's a God thing. And to stand there within three, four feet of that happening, that's like front row seats with a lobster and champagne. It is, I get to see the transformation. That's amazing. So our beliefs, they, they start with an experience or they arrive at an experience. Yeah, I've like had... what early experiences have made you want to do those things? Well, I think as a teenager, I had definite experiences of encountering God, not crisis, not, not trauma or anything like that, but just as real as I'm talking to you, those things uh, build up in your life as you pursue them start to, in my case, you know, read scripture and you see these books behind me. That's not a screenshot. That's that's a real library. It's pretty big. Wow. Um, yeah. How many books is that? About 4,000 in the room. And most of them are about biblical interpretation and history and organizational culture and all of those things. You pursue those things. You, you read. You begin to apply yourself, become disciplined in your beliefs. Again, going back to your early comments, the country is not as it used to be. Religions have voices that speak up for them. Not so much Christianity. I don't know who's the voice in the United States that speaks up for the Christian faith. In the political world, in the marketplace, I'm not sure. But with other religions, if you say anything that has a weight of challenge to it, of course, you're evil. And so civil dialogue is important. Of course, I have a lot of friends that follow different religions. I mean, in, in, in the academic world, of course you do. People identifying differently, a ton of people that identify differently than what you would imagine. But that's pretty common in, in the academic world world so and that's another world i swim in so civil yeah, have you had challenges in the academic world i know you've written a book on organizational culture no i've i've not had any personal challenges the academic world is a place where ideas are supposed to be uh, encouraged and floated and discussed to be safe to do that to have ideas and to develop those ideas for me my phd my research was intercultural studies you know, how do we communicate? I produced the book, Cultural Clarity, Understanding and Developing Organizational Culture, which is one of my passions. A bunch of clients that I work with, 
again, different belief systems they have, but what we all have in common is culture. I love so, the quote you put in there, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, that's not my quote. I wrote it in the book, but I'm actually quoting a very age old quote where, I mean, culture is the stuff that holds everything together. Whether you have a product or a service, whether you are a school, a church, or whether you are a corporation culture. I mean, Disney just fired their CEO because he apparently was chasing a social agenda more than turning a profit. So the organizational culture of Disney is in the pan right now. I mean, they banned strollers from Disney World. So what are mothers supposed to do? You know, carry the babies? You know, it's crazy. Why did they do um, that? I'm not too sure, but it's an example of a uh, fractured organizational culture. And then, of course, you've got Netflix through COVID. They lost a lot of subscribers. And their response was, we don't give a rip. You don't like us, go join someone else. And now they've got back all those subscribers and a ton of others. That's a solid culture. And then we've got Elon Musk buys Twitter, starts to filter out who he wants to fire. And he's radically changing the culture of that massive organization. Well, I work it with small and medium-sized corporations, helping them with organizational culture. You know, wherever we go, we take our beliefs, our values, our worldview, our how we treat people. We take them into the workplace. Now, how do we make that work together in a world where civil dialogue seems to have diminished, you know? How do we? I think good leadership, hmm. good leadership. There's lots of stuff, and I mean lots of stuff, that is innocent and can be attacked. So let me give you an example. When I first started my career in the marketplace, I could I could say to someone, hey, you're looking great today, just a compliment, something very vague like that. And of course, now any comment like that is objectifying. Sexual harassment. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know how far it would go, but and I do think we have to be wise to the culture we are in. A middle-aged Texan saying to someone, how are you, my darling? They're a middle-aged Texan. It's part of who they are. They don't mean anything by it. It's just affectionate and loving and kind. I think there are things we have to learn and adapt to in communicating. But I, I do think the hypersensitivity out there is affecting the productivity of organizations. So in schools, it's affecting their enrollment, graduation, retention in corporations, They're seeing huge turnover of staff where good people are leaving to work for other companies for actually less money. You have to ask yourself why, because they're not happy at work. I'm actually glad that you brought up the school piece too, because how hard is this on our children? You know, that's a very, depending on what state you're in, depending on what- I'm in the same state as you. Your audience, depending on what state they're in, what county, what school district, I think we must remember that children are not adults and they don't think and process as adults. Their worldview is very unshaped. Ever since Sigmund Freud and and his day, not that I agree with most of what he said, but ever since philosophy has been a thing in social studies, the social sciences, we must be very careful with our children not to, for instance, If a family is of a certain culture and and part of their culture is their religious beliefs, then mom and dad are going to teach those to those children. That's not the school's job, whatever religion, or it might be no religion at all. And and they'll teach their children that. And that's fine. That's fine. But that's not the school's job. Matters of falling in love and relationships 
on that level, that's the family's job. That's not the school's job. I remember when I was in grade school, I was in love every other day with every other girl. But that was as a child. And it was just, I like you, you'll like me. And that's as far as it went. Nothing else. Because you're a child. Now, of course, today with these things, we have access to all kinds of stuff. But again, depends what state, what county, what school district you're in. There are some great schools out there, but there are others that are more about indoctrinating children, which is the family's job. It's not the school's job. That's concerning. I listen to a lot of the commentary on critical race theory. It's not something I've read into too much, but I've listened to the commentary. In fact, I was in a, an event the other day and there were two African-American gentlemen openly discussing this. And one of them said, it's a terrible thing. I don't want my children to know that generations ago that they are cast as oppressed. And the other one said, no, I do want my children to know that generations ago. And see, I'm sitting there listening to my two African-American friends in a public event talking about this. Now, if I entered the discussion as someone who was not born in the United States, completely different history, a completely different country, I must tread carefully. Even though I'm now an American citizen, I must tread carefully and with the greatest respect. But it does concern me that those things are uh, part of indoctrination. When you look at who built the railroads in the United States, what about that? You look at some other groups that were absolutely contextualized a certain way. What about that? For me, I tend to have a worldview that moves forward. Being married almost 30 years, three adult children, one grandchild. Throughout the journey of life, I've learned to move forward, appreciate the past and move forward with respect to, to other people, but not as a vanilla voiceless, nameless whisper of a person. We all have things to say and contribute. Is that why you started a blog? Yes, more or less. You know, right now I'm preparing to post four blogs through throughout Advent. Christian calendar starts on November the 26th. Prior to that, I did a whole series of blogs called The Idolatry of Identity. How we are obsessive over our identity. Obsessive. I always tell people my pronouns are charming and handsome. You know, with tongue in cheek, you know, you have to be careful where you say that. But there is an absolute obsession with identity. Any simple reading of, of the history of human beings, your identity is quite often derived from your community, not from you, but from your community you're in. Go back to the Vikings, go back to ancient Britain or Gaul that is now France, the Roman Empire, any empire. The founding of the United States and the 13 colonies. Your identity came from your colony. Your religion came from your colony. You cannot have community with rampant individualism. There has to be some give and take, or we end up being a bag of marbles, you know? I love that. Yeah. Are there parts but, of your you know, identity that have changed or evolved? I would say within my worldview, they have matured. So what identities? Well, I am a man. I don't need to overly explain that. I am a man, a male. I'm a married man, so I'm a husband. We have had three children, so I'm a father. One of our children has a daughter, so I am a grandfather. So mm. man, father, husband, grandfather. I'm also friend. I'm also clergy, an academic. I'm an American citizen, but the moment I talk, I sound foreign. I'm a number of those things. I have a number of titles that I've earned, but the best one is Andrew, just Andrew. 
you know, as I grow as a husband, as a father, as a man, as a grandfather, there is a change in your heart. You soften up, but you also deepen as a person. I guess you learn to think more. Apart from when I'm in the car, I change in the car. My identity in the car is, what's that movie where there's that venom? You know, the movie Venom, that's the venom in me. <laughs> but I guess I've got to mature in that identity as well. My, my point is this, that, that in organizational culture, we have to appreciate it's not the 1950s. We're living in a, a new day. How do we communicate with each other effectively as an organization to succeed in who we are as an organization? That's where I'm employed a great deal. To Does help it take 4,000 books to get there? No, that's a personal hobby. To sit down with a, a leather-bound book at nighttime in this room on your leather furniture with a nice glass of wine, reading, I don't know, reading anything by C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien or Madeleine L'Engle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, which actually a series of five books or anything like that, you know, love it. Absolutely love it. That's my That's my therapy for mental health. Yeah, I love that. Get lost in a book and caught up in a world that used to be or a world that could be. What did you learn from your dad? Well, I'm adopted. My father is still alive. My mother passed away four years ago now and uh, three years ago now. Sorry. Every week I get on the phone with with my dad. He's 82 and uh, I still seek his advice. So that too speaks to identity. And so he's a very gracious man. I'm very, very grateful for a father that mom and dad were always married, very loving man, very much a gentleman, very considerate towards others and devoted as a husband to my mother. So that helped me. So, you know, what does marriage look like? What does being a man look like? You know, I could list a whole lot of things that I'm, I'm proud of my father for, but I don't wish to anyone who's listening that doesn't have that. There are other men out there that can help you. Yeah, that's interesting. I love that you still talk to him and that you guys have a good relationship. That's amazing. Well, I mean, your whole podcast, Better Call Daddy. I do. At the end of the conversation, he'll, you know, I'll say, I love you, dad. And so I love you, son. Because that might be the last conversation. He called me the other, and I called him the other day and he said, Christmas is coming up. I, I put some money in your British bank account that you can transfer over to America for your kids for Christmas presents. You know, my kids don't know that yet, but just very kind and thoughtful and keeps him connected to family. You know, he tells me about his walks that he's going on. What's it like to live without mom? Very interesting and very instructive. Very important in a man's world to have those fatherly characters around you because at some point you too become the fatherly character to others. You know, just last night, my dad said to me, like, part of why we're doing this podcast is because one day I won't be able to have these conversations with you. And that is so hard for me to hear. Mm. Do you think about that and the conversations that you're having with your dad? And I'm so sorry yeah. about your mom. You know, mom had cancer and uh, the prognosis was pretty bad. And while she was still conscious, I flew back to the UK and spent uh, a week in their home. And of course, you savor every moment, every hour, every day. And then came that final day where I had to get back on the plane and it was would be the last time I would ever see her. And when you know that consciously, and she adopted me with my father, I owe everything to her. So I gave her a hug, prayed with her, gave her a hug and she put her cheek next to mine. You can still remember the warmth of her cheek next to mine. You're all knotted up inside. 
and you say goodbye, you drive away. And of course, on the way back down from where they live all the way to London, where I was going to catch a flight back to the States, you know, you are in tears. We must embrace all of these things because they deepen us. It's part of being human. We are made to feel sorrow and loss and grief. Uh, we're not meant to live there and dwell there, but we're meant to handle that. We're also meant to feel ecstatic joy and excitement and celebration. And because in the Christian belief system, I believe I'll see my mom again one day. And uh, she believed that too. That is a matter of faith. You know, again, I've not been to heaven, but what a joy it is to carry that belief around with you. And so we're designed to feel these things if we allow ourselves to embrace these things and have good people around us. We deepen as people. We mature. We, we're able to contribute more and empathize more with others. I absolutely love that. And the way that you talked about feeling her cheek, I just held my grandmother's hand. I went to literally hold her hand with my three-year-old and you know, being with a 94-year-old woman and a three-year-old last week in Florida, really, I could only have a couple of those moments because I'm chasing the three-year-old around. But yeah. just to be able to put their hands together and just to be able to feel her soft skin, I cried back on the way to the airport. I don't know how many of those moments I'm going to get to have. And yes, it definitely deepens you and it makes you really think big picture. Yeah. And it helps you help the next generation, your own children. Life is filled with duty and responsibility, as well as a lot of fun. The duty of going to see your grandmother and all of those things, you know, it's, we are obligated. But in our obligation, we, we learn so much. Okay, that was a really beautiful moment. I do have a couple questions for the audience, and you can choose to answer them or not. Because okay. I did post your news story. And as you can imagine, I got sure. some heated responses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's have some fun. <laughs> Again, you can say yes or no. Can you talk about some beliefs that you have shared publicly? We did a little bit talk about that, but do you want to elaborate on that a little bit more? Since I've been blogging, multiple beliefs. But of course, that is to engage people with civil dialogue. It's not to force my beliefs on someone, but to engage that we all may learn. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's important. It's almost like a duty to share what you've learned and to add to a conversation, right? Right, Especially sure. the amount of knowledge that you have. Well, I don't know I have a lot, but it's nice to think instead of react. Okay. Another listener wanted to know, do you support the LGBT community? I was listening yesterday to an interview with a lesbian lady, and she said, that is an oxymoron. I didn't say that. She said that. She said, gay, lesbian, and bisexual, she said, is all about sexual preference but that transgender and queer is all about identity preference. And she said that it's an acronym that is not true to what it proposes to be. It's not a actual community. It is, in her words, a weaponized agenda. I have in the academic world, of course, colleagues that are gay and lesbian. Of course I do. But that's the last thing you talk about because it's no one's business and they don't make it mine and I don't make mine theirs. So am I a supporter? I'm a supporter of the fact that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. If we start there, then inclusion follows. But I will not departmentalize people and add value to them and lesser value to others. That's not right. I think my dad will appreciate that answer. 
Okay. Freedom of speech has been abused by people to spread hate speech, anti-Semitic views, bullying. How does one distinguish between the right of freedom of speech and exclusive harmful speech? Well, of course, that's the beauty of those amendments. As they say, the proof is in the pudding. If someone is filled with hate and if the audience stops following, stops reacting, that voice disappears. I think sometimes, you know, people say things just to build an audience, which is a, a very sad thing, hateful things. And again, in the Christian world or in the Christian belief system, you know, we, we're taught to love our neighbor. That can be challenging, but we must so I'm not an advocate for hate speech at all. And I think those that are, I think if people just turn their backs on them, they go away. I think those people need love more than anybody else. I do it when I'm watching TV and someone starts riling about other people. I, hate, I just turn over the channel. If I'm reading an article and it starts to get vindictive and hateful, I put it down and stop reading it. I'm in control of what I listen to and read and watch. A hundred percent. Okay, let me see this one. I'm literally just reading them like as I'm reading them to use. I haven't even 100% gone through all of them. In terms of public statement, there is a current lack of sensitivity in the internet by people commenting on matters in which do not concern them. Why is this the case in your opinion? Well, it's not the case in my opinion but mm. or, or in my practice. It's, that's not the case. There are billions of topics that I am not qualified to uh, comment on in terms of knowledge or social interaction. The whole world is not the United States. There are multiple cultures I would not know how to comment on and what happens in them. For instance, where the World Cup is right now being held, they've banned alcohol from being drunk, lots of cultural nuances. I would really have to read well into a Middle East culture to understand how to comment on those things i only comment on what i'm involved in and what i'm engaging with yeah that's probably smart <laughs> okay let me see this one might come across a little harsh as a white christian man in america a lot of people think that you're the most privileged species on earth so just airing an opinion comes with a responsibility what are your thoughts about that as far as entitlement oh i think the question is utterly loaded Yes, I'm, it is. I'm 54 years of age. I've only become very conscious of my whiteness, having grown up in a multi, multicultural environment of Great Britain and Europe, where skin colors are everything from white to all the shades of brown and black and everything in, in between. It's only in the United States where questions like that would really be presented to me. So it, it, the question carries an attitude. It carries an agenda. Am I mindful of who I'm talking to, regardless of being a man, white, Christian? Of course I am. And I think I've qualified that the older you get, your, your life deepens, or it should do, and you become more appreciative and empathetic. Has that got anything to do with being white? No, don't be silly. Absolutely not. That's an agenda that is framing questions that trip people up no matter how they answer them. So I would say deepen the question. Am I mindful that some of my views are adjacent to other views? Absolutely. Do I want to listen to other views? Absolutely. Do I want to learn? Yes. Am I going to give up on any of mine? No. But that's the beauty of being in America. Nice. I love that. Is there anything you'd like to ask my dad? I would love to sit down with your dad if it was the daytime over a cup of tea. And of course, it would be bone china cup and saucer, never styrofoam. 
I would ask him what it was like to grow up in America for him. Ooh, what a great question. Now. now, if it was the evening, he <laughs> would be here in my library. We would be sitting back in these leather chairs and having a cognac. And because that's a gentleman's drink, I would ask him similar questions. But because it's the end of the day, there's nothing to go to except bed at the end of the day. And so we tend to be more relaxed. So I would deepen and broaden the pursuit of what was it really like to grow up in the United States through the decades of your life. And I'd be very interested because first 31 years of my life, I lived in another country. So I'm, I'm what Steven Pinker would call the blank slate. I am a blank slate when it comes to growing up in America because I didn't. That is such a great question. I love that. And I've not even ever framed it like that. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about that. Yeah. Over cognac or tea. Tea in the yeah. day, cognac in the evening. And if any of your audience want to reach out to me personally, absolutely. I love to engage with them, learn more, engage more. And surely that's why we have the amendments. That's why we have the Bill of Rights. That's why we can come to a common place and learn from each other. I hope those days will return. And less of the shouting, less of the threatening, and more of the appreciation. Thank you for the beautiful message and interview. I really appreciate it. I mean, what a fantastic conversation. And thank you for being open to answering those questions in the way that they were written and let people know how they can reach out to you and buy your book and all of that good stuff. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure. Appreciate you very much. You can you go to the website, which is www.drandrewfox.com. You could drop me an email, pull it off the website, andrew at drandrewfox.com. Jump on my Instagram, drandrewfox. Connect with me there engage with me there. I'd love to know more about your audience. Thank you. I can't wait to hear what my dad has to say. This is awesome. Yes. I've subscribed to your podcast, so I'm looking forward to it. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Well, Andrew, I have to admit, not only did I listen to the episode once, I had to listen to it a second time because it's really deep in thought and philosophy. And as you would say, a maturing or a transformation that a human being goes through and the added responsibilities that we get all along the way and how when we have these experiences and we're open-minded and we read and we really learn about other people, you find out that it's not all about us. It's all about really developing where we can all fit in and have a community and where we develop our culture and our show, what it's about is developing and passing on a legacy and sharing that with others and trying to get their theory and experiences that they have carried out in their family or what they believe that they'd like to carry on, pass on to future generations and people as well. So it's pretty deep thought in this episode. And I really loved it. Yeah, he wrote a whole book about cultural clarity. And I think we got some cultural clarity in this episode. Oh, that's, that's for sure. But look how he also mentions how careful we have to be on what we say and what we do now, where before you'd be able to express your ideas. And even if it was off the chart a little bit, you have the freedom in this country to be able to express yourself and to be able to talk about it without prosecution. And now it appears that some of that freedom of prosecution is it's a little dubious now. Now, if you say the wrong things or you come out of line or, or you have an emotional breakdown to some degree out in public, 
It can be held, can be not only held against you, but where you can lose your job over it. You can lose your friends over it. You can lose your family over it. It's quite intense how careful one has to be, almost like we're not living in a free country. I thought his question to you was interesting as well. He wanted to know what your experience was like growing up in this country because he didn't really grow up here. Well, the funny part is, is that when you don't grow up in this country or you don't grow up in the same city as somebody else, and you're the new person or the outsider, sometimes not everybody makes friends or can get involved with different groups because they already have their niche. They already have their their presence. In my case, I got along with so many different people, but I was like an outsider wherever I went because my dad and mom moved so many times that I was displaced sometimes from school to school to school to school where I had gone to like five or six schools, different schools growing up and lived in various towns. It might not be the same thing exactly as coming from another country, but coming from another state or coming from another culture, because being Jewish and going to a town where there wasn't that many Jews also can make things a little bit more difficult. And most of the fights that I got into when I was younger was defending some of the my Jewish friends that couldn't really defend themselves from big bullies. It almost made me look like I was a troublemaker a little bit. And yet really what I was was defending myself and defending some of the people I cared about. I mean, I can say from my experience of growing up in Kentucky, people used to say pretty hurtful things unfiltered. No question about it. But the funny part is, is that I could be wrong about this. This is only from my own experience. But I think that unless your family has lived in that town for generations and generations, I think that we're all looked at sometimes as outsiders trying to show that we are amicable to be part of the in crowd or the town. It's getting involved. It's communicating. It's showing through your actions that you get involved and that you care about where you're at. And a lot of times, People think outsiders don't really give a shit or don't really care the same way that they do. That could be what the barrier might be. And then, of course, whether we want to admit it or not, there are people that grow up with certain prejudices. And if, like you say, you're an American citizen, but if you talk like a foreigner, they're still going to think you're a foreigner and question what your motives might be. I think that that is sometimes a natural thing, as well as where we always have to prove ourselves no matter where we are or what we do. But I think that's generally speaking in life itself, on a new job or a new community or or any new task. Don't we have to always show that we have to prove ourselves and show that we can successfully succeed at whatever that assignment or task or job is? It seems so. Right. The bothersome part is, is that you want to be able to be judged by your own merits. And unfortunately, part of life is not necessarily fair where you could actually be doing a better job or being more sincere and still other people might choose someone else where it's baseless and not on the merit. And I think that that's unfair. When you do job where you can show that you have really knowledge on a subject and you are communicating that to other people and where they're communicating to you and we're able to break those barriers by showing that we can brainstorm together and that we can live together, and we can do it in a, in a peaceful manner, and not with all of this threats of war or terror and fighting. I think we have a chance to achieve a lot more if we can do it sensibly and more maturely, rather than to have our dukes up at all times. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 